0: Welcome back, my friends. Today, we're going to be looking at some of the most unusual verses in the entire Torah. But before I begin, let me just thank you for joining me today and invite you to subscribe in case you aren't yet subscribed, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Please make sure you notify, you enable notifications so that you can get a little dingle in the future to know when we're going live. Parshas Vayishlach, an extraordinary portion of the Torah. Here we narrate Yaakov, Father Jacob's, return to the land of Canaan after a 20-year absence. Yaakov, Father Jacob, is very worried about his brother Esau. Esau is the guy who wanted the blessings, the blessings that were rightfully Yaakov's. But Esau didn't see it that way. Esau is coming. He's coming with 400 men armed to the teeth. Basically Hezbollah terrorists, <laughs> their intention to wipe out the nation that Yaakov's trying to build. Father Jacob tries to engage his brother with diplomacy, as in gifts, and all kinds of other bribes. It doesn't seem to be working. Yaakov prepares for battle, and he prays for success. In the end, on the night before that fateful meeting between these two brothers, Yaakov has another fateful encounter. Esau's angel avatar, who doesn't really have a name, comes out of nowhere jumping Yaakov in the dark of the night, and they wrestle until daybreak. Although he successfully dislocates Yaakov, Father Jacob's hip, Yaakov prevails. And in the end, the angelic avatar is forced to concede, but not before he blesses Yaakov, calling him Yisrael, one who is able to contend successfully. That very day, Yaakov and Esau meet. And there's a lot to be said about that encounter. Let's just say that Esau rushed towards Yaakov with baleful intent, but ended up breaking his teeth on Yaakov's neck that had miraculously hardened. Esau doesn't engage in a violent conflict with Yaakov. In fact, they embrace, kiss and make up. They're even friends for a little while. And then they part ways, forever. Then we hear about Yaakov's journey that continues. He's back home in the land. He purchases a plot. It's right next to the city of Shechem. Tragedy strikes. Dina, Yaakov's only daughter, is abducted and violently raped. Yaakov's sons have no choice but to weaken the city's defenders with clever guile, and in the end they come to save or release their sister Dina, but they have to do it, resorting to very violent means, tragic indeed. Yaakov then experiences the greatest sorrow in his life, his wife and beloved Rachel dies in childbirth as Benyamin is born. Yaakov is now back in Chevron after burying Rachel at the roadside and begins to raise his family. Mother Rebecca passes on, but it's not really recorded and we don't hear much about that. The Torah does record the passing of Yitzchak. And we hear about Yaakov's family. Yaakov's family is now established in their rightful place. And after Yaakov's passing, the 36th chapter of Genesis has got to be one of the most unusual chapters in the entire Torah. I mean, it isn't as if this episodically strange. There isn't any unusual narrative that takes place per se. But the purpose of these verses is entirely perplexing. We get the genealogy the line of Esau. Esau the brother of Yaakov, who is nicknamed Edom, we hear about his wives, we hear about his children, we hear about Esau's turning his back and leaving the land of Canaan, instead heading southeast into Edom. We hear about Seir the Chorite, who are the original inhabitants of the land of Seir, or Mount Seir, driven out by Esau and his family. And then we hear about a kingdom of sorts, a kind of independent, self-governing nation or pseudo-kingdom of Edom that gets established. And we hear about the kings of Edom. And then we hear about Edom after the era of kings. There's a lot of names and a lot of generations. Names of monarchs and monarchies, names of cities or geographic locations, names of Asevite genealogy. And then, the stranger just gets stranger. We conclude, the final verse of the Torah tells us, Aluf Magdiel, we hear about these pseudo-monarchs who are really called chiefs. The chief Magdiel and Aluf Iram. The tribal chiefs of Magdiel and Iram. And the Torah concludes, Remember, this is the final word on Pasha's Vayishlach. It's all about Yaakov and all about the development of the Jewish nation. We hear about Alufei Edom, the tribal chieftains of Edom, that is Esau, who's the progenitor of the Edomites, according to the settlements in the lands they possess. 43 verses of useless trivia people who lived more than three and a half millennia ago people who have no lasting legacy at least not in a spiritual sense these are not the founders of the jewish people in any way shape or form many of these kings were not even edomite or descendants of esau because They couldn't get along on virtually anything. They had to import political leaders. Nobody had the political capital, charisma, to hammer them together as a nation. So we're hearing about about kings and chieftains of an ancient land with seemingly irrelevant trivia. And you're saying, hey, teach me Torah. (laughs) The Torah is the document we maintain of life's guidance. The word Torah, strictly speaking, means or comes from the term hora'ah, which means instruction. Instructions for life. The Torah is supposed to be the source of our instructions for life. We also have this rule that we always end on a high and that hakol holech Achrachitum, everything follows the conclusion. The conclusion of Vayishlach is 43 useless verses. Who really cares? And what lesson might we possibly learn why would the Torah conclude in this fashion? Were all those details really that necessary? Who died when? Who they were succeeded by? And which river they lived at? We even get details about what a fellow named Anna did. Oh, he figured out that you could breed mules because if you cross A horse with a donkey you get a mule and he was the product of an illicit union and so he felt quite comfortable about producing similar products in the animal world he created mutts so what of what relevance is that so today i'm going to try to i'm going to try to give you a little bit of an appreciation for what seems to be outlandish verses of the Torah, superfluous and unnecessary teachings, genealogy that doesn't seem to teach or indicate anything of meaning or import to us. We will focus specifically on the second to the last verse of the Parsha, and especially on Rashi's commentary that illuminates it. But before I do that, I thought it was a meaningful perhaps to share with you the words of our sages as they are beautifully redacted and sewn together in tapestry form by the Me'am Lois. He says, A'aleichem you must know that this portion, the portion I've been speaking about, is filled, he says, rife with secrets of the Torah. He says some of the most profound, mystical, Kabbalistic writings, something known as the Idra or Idra Rabba, part of which we recite one of the holiest nights of the year on Shavuot when we don't go to sleep in preparation for receiving the Torah the next morning, is all based on these 43 verses. He says due to our shortcomings we aren't capable of understanding these verses we aren't really suited to appreciate the profundity being proffered but we must at least read these words and quoting Rabbeinu bagai he says something so interesting the <speaking> in <Hebrew> nefesh your soul is certainly going to be uplifted, exhilarated by reading these words, because the words of Hashem's Torah, even if this is a part of the Torah that we can't really understand or wrap our heads around. Shehi, for the nefesh, which is our deeper consciousness, mevina hakol. the soul understands it all. Aleichem Ma'am Ma'amloi says, it behooves you to be exceedingly careful. Don't miss a single word of this scriptural synergy. Every single nuance, every syllable is of great importance. Al ya'alabedaitchem do not entertain the thought Shu. That this is heaven forfend history. parsha zu. There is no difference, Rabbeinu Bahaya taught, between this Torah portion and between the proverbial Ten Commandments. Hakol echad. It's all one. It's all one Torah. Some of it we are capable of understanding on some level. Or a number of levels. And some of it, we kind of get stuck at the door, at the entry level. But there are layers and layers and layers. And as much as you or I are able to understand, we must know that the Torah is far deeper than anything we might be able to fathom. And we study Torah with this knowledge. We study Torah with this awareness. We study Torah with this kind of spiritual dedication. And in some ways, you know, when you read verses like this and you don't understand anything, it really emphasizes the truth about the Torah, that it's beyond us. Because when you're reading a part of the Torah that you understand and appreciate, you can easily make the mistake in thinking that this is the be-all and end-all. I got it. But you never really get it. There's always a depth beyond what the, I can see and the mind can grasp. Having said that, Ma'am Loya says, I want you to know that by simply analyzing these verses, you will find no less than 12 novelties. 12 novelties from a Torah perspective. Some of them are halachic. Some of them give us an appreciation of the position or esteem of the patriarchs and matriarchs of the Jewish people, all of them add and lend themselves to a deeper and better understanding of the rudimentary essence of Torah. So, whilst this may not be understood in a rudimentary fashion at all, when you study it, you can gain rudimentary understanding in areas that we do have a grasp on. Ma'amloyez does not suggest that this is the ultimate purpose or that this is the penultimate understanding of these verses. He says, even these verses that we don't really understand, even these very portions, and there are three portions, because the Torah isn't apportioned into 53 portions of parashiot, those are sedra, those are orders. The Torah is apportioned into hundreds and hundreds of small little parshiot, which you probably would call in English a paragraph. And we can see where one begins and ends by the spacing in the way they're written in the Torah. And the way you make those spaces, the principles we follow in writing the Torah, are halakha le Moshe our law that's been given to us generation after generation hailing back to Moses at Sinai and the first Sifre Torah written by Moses himself. Three portions, 43 verses, 12 major lessons, endless profundity and depth. So I'm gonna run through these 12 different lessons just, just so that we have somewhat, somewhat of an appreciation for how even that part of Torah that we don't understand does teach us quite a few things. The first thing the Ma'am Lois says is that when you read these verses, you get a sense of how low Esau or Esav had fallen. Now Ma'am Lois doesn't elaborate on what I'm about to share with you, but I think it's important for me to take a moment and note that Esau had great potential. It's really impossible to suggest otherwise. If he had to be wicked, well, then there would be no freedom of choice. And if there would be no freedom of choice, Esau couldn't be called wicked or evil. And Yaakov couldn't be called holy or righteous. Because in order to achieve those very platitudes, what's required is the ability to choose. We get credit for the choices we make, but if we had no other ability or no other choice, we can't get credit for it. Even when we only have one choice, which is to do the right thing, we still have the choice of inaction. That's also a choice we make. We can choose to be inert or inactive, or choose to respond. But if a person has no choice as to what he or she is about to do, for example, if it's merely what we would call instinctive, That's not about righteousness, or not. As I've talked about many times in the classes, and perhaps I can never emphasize this enough, there are no bad animals. There are no good animals, there are just animals. There's a video that's going around online that shows a wild animal, a predator, who comes every night to visit a cow And he kind of rubs against this cow and spends quality time with this cow and then leaves. And he never eats her. And it's this video, it's like unbelievable. You'd think Mashiach came. The wolf was lying with the lamb. The lion is playing with the cow. So it turns out, at least that's the story that's out there, that this young lion cub or tiger was orphaned of its mother at a very young age, and the cow actually suckled it. And it thinks the cow is his mother. So it recognizes the cow is his mother, you don't eat your mother, so it goes and spends time with his mother. That's all instinct. The difference between the, the tiger or lion who eats a cow or doesn't eat a cow is not because the tiger or lion made a choice to be kind, considerate, or sweet, nice to the hand that fed it, No, it's just doing what it does instinctually. But people, huh. Now, people are another story. People have the ability to choose. And I know people who were raised and suckled and given everything they possibly could have wanted by people whom they later chose to ignore or even behave badly towards. Because people have the freedom to choose. That's what makes being human so special. And when people say, well, I'm only human, the response should be, precisely, that is the point. Be a mensch. Don't simply revert to your worst instinct because that would be a choice, a bad one. Instead, choose to be righteous. Asaf had to have the ability to choose right. As the Rebbe once explained, based on the words of Maimonides, Rambam, in Shemona which is his, kind of his introduction to the Mesechet, the tractate known as Avot, that speaks about, and it speaks about ethos and speaks about piety and beyond the letter of the law. Rambam says that there are two pathways of serving Hashem. One he calls HaChosid HaMeula, the perfectly or superlatively pious individual, and that's the individual who always does the right thing. You know, the kid who brings the proverbial apple to the teacher each day. And then he says, there's Mizgaber El Yitzray. There's the person who overpowers his evil inclination. You're talking about a person who has really bad tendencies. In fact, there's a school of thought that taught that David HaMelech had really bad tendencies. And they interpret the verse in Psalm 119, which David HaMelech says, Shomarti pikudecha secha. I kept all of your precepts. I kept your testimonies because my ways were corresponding. They read it as against it. It's the Lois, in fact, Antillam who quotes this idea that Dovet Hamelech had Esauite tendencies, including the red hair and a bloodlust. And that Dovet Hamelech could have been a horrible individual. And that's precisely why he became so great. Because when there's no traction, or no challenge, you don't really get propelled forward. You know, the harder it is to pedal your bicycle, the faster you're going to go. So, Esav... Esav was the Mitgaber Gabriel Yitzro. He was saddled with an enormous evil inclination. He had a lot of bad tendencies. He also had the ability to overcome it. Sadly, he chose not to. It was Yaakov who was more naturally good and was forced by his mother to really strain at the, at the extreme, to kind of transcend himself, to break out of his mold to get the blessings and then to deal with love. And that's when Yaakov becomes Yaakov. It's only after he does what has to be done to get the blessings that are rightfully his. It's only after he contends with 20 years of emotional and mental torture by Laban, a wicked, evil, swindling, deceitful father-in-law of Yaakov. And it's only after he can wrestle with Esau's angelic avatar and come out on top that he gets the name Yisrael because he finally had to toil and go beyond the orbit of his nature. So the Torah points out to you according to the Ma'am Lois, the first thing we learn here is, P'chitutam shom mishpachot of the lowly nature, the abhorrent nature, of the family asav spawned. You're talking about a man who was capable of being more righteous than Yaakov Avina. You're talking about a person who could have been one of the most righteous people in the world, ever. Instead, Not only did he turn rotten and evil, but he, with two parents like Isaac and Rebecca, Yitzchak and Rivka, a generation later spawns not one, not two, not three, but four strains of illegitimate children. I'm talking about not just out of wedlock. We're talking about adultery, straight up, incest incest and adultery is what punctuated esav's own family what a spiritual low what an incredible fall that happened in one generation one generation away from torah saw one of the most debauched families filled with the worst kind of spirit of sexual misconduct and impropriety of all history. That's lesson one. That's a very important lesson. And we know this by analyzing the verses. I'm not going to go through the details with you, but we actually hear of confused paternity, where so-and-so is the child of this one but seems to be fathered by somebody else. The second chiddush or novelty here, Ma'am Loya says, is that the wife of Esav, The daughter of Yishmael has a different name, and we talked about this in our class two weeks ago. Unfortunately, a lot of it got knocked off, and I hope today's class is going to record okay. (laughs) Her name was, last time around, Machlat, which comes from the term of forgiveness or atonement. Now she's called Basmat, or the Spice Lady, Spice Girl. What happened? Well, she was actually a righteous young lady. And Esau intended for a moment to perhaps do tshuva and turn in a leaf, become all he could be. All it takes is marrying the right woman. The worst guy could have become a really good person if only... He'd married the right woman. Well, he did marry the right woman, and he could have obtained forgiveness. In fact, the Talmud and Medrash tell us that we learn till this very day that by marrying the right woman, a man can be cleansed and get a new start on life. But instead, he debauched her because he didn't get rid of his previous wives. He continued to live in the same rotten fashion until she ended up bringing incense to idols too. And we know that from this Pasha because her name gets changed. The third thing, Ma'am Maamloch suggests, is something which is quoted in the Yalkut Shemoni, a medrash that talks about a probably a Roman who accosted the sage Rabbi Yehoshua ben Karcha, and he said to him, "You know, the vast majority of the civilized world is engaged in the worship of a pantheon of gods. We call that avodah or alien worship, idolatry." Shouldn't you follow the majority? Doesn't majority always rule by dint of your Torah? And the Bishu goes on to tell him, he says, tell me something. How many children do you have? And he names a list of children. And he says, what's mealtime like in your house? And he says, oh, don't even ask. Everybody's fighting. They, if my family gets together, it's World War III. Everybody believes in something else, and everybody has a different idea, and nobody has any commonality whatsoever. So Rabbi Shua Ben says, Yep, that was Esav And that's derived from the verbiage the Torah uses, describing Esav's many different people or children, not as a single family, but as many souls, many consciousness, or many different attitudes. nafshes rabbis. And he says, when it comes to Jacob, it's 70 souls, one attitude, one nefesh one state of consciousness, one frame of mind. And B'shu'l Ben says it's not really about the fact that there are so many of you worshiping idols, the fact that you worship so many different idols <laughs> and you actually don't agree on anything other than to hate us. And that is just a snippet of this exchange between B'shu'l Ben Karcha and this Gentile interlocutor who sought to Reason with Rabbi Shua ben Karha that Judaism should be dismantled, but anyway, it comes. The crux of that conversation and argument comes in these verses. A fourth thing he says. Hashtag #MeToo has got nothing on Asaf. This was a society, Asa's family, that objectified women, and cared only about the pursuit of libido, sexual interest reigned supreme. If that sounds familiar, it's because Western civilization is actually the great-great-great-grandchild of Esau's civilization. We can see that by the way the Torah lists the women in Esau's lives and the lives of his children, and the way the Torah lists and enumerates their children. Esau's was never family values. It was never about the children and family they would build together. It was always about my woman. Etc. And that's the fourth thing we're able to derive from these verses. Very important lesson in life. Lesson number five, he says, it's these verses that bring home to us the incredible esteem that Abraham, Father Abraham, was held. There's this illegitimate woman, a princess, who desperately wants to cleave to the family of Avram, but they won't accept her because she's Illegitimate. She was fathered from an extramarital affair, but she comes to join Esau's family, and even they won't marry her, so she becomes a concubine. And she says, At least I can be part of this family. She came from nobility. She was the daughter of a a monarch of a fiefdom, and yet she abandoned that because she wanted to attach herself to the seed of Abraham. And that gives us an incredible insight. Really remarkable way to appreciate who Avraham was and became. He never sat on a throne. He never commanded an army or armed forces per se, although he engaged in conflict and battle when he had to. He didn't collect taxes and never wielded a scepter. And yet, despite the fact that he didn't have a fortress or a walled city, despite the fact that he in no way, shape, or form, actually claimed to have any kind of pseudo-state, He had universal influence. And he was held in the highest of esteem. Decades after his passing, people just wanted to join that family through the bonds of matrimony or at least an intimate relationship. Not a small lesson. The sixth lesson, is the notion that this nation that Esau spawned couldn't even produce its own leadership. It was constantly importing leaders, dukes of sorts or kings from other countries and civilizations. Because in the end, they were rotten, but mediocre. They didn't have the ability to really excel at any kind of profound leadership that could have united them lesson number seven he says this teaches us very very important idea about life in plain english easy come is easy go Esau founds this nation state virtually overnight not at all like the jewish people The Hebrew nation, which is just a family, ends up going down into Egypt, and they only emerged 210 years later as a nation, born as it is from the bowels of Egypt, a nation taken out of another nation, a superpower of the day, where they were considered to be the dregs of society, the lowest possible form of human life. And these slaves, through a period of 40 years in the desert, blossom and grow into a strong and a proud nation that is able to conquer home, come home to Canaan, to establish the first commonwealth of Israel. And it takes more than four centuries. But eventually, yes, there is a king. There is a nation fully established. That's not easy come. We, the Jewish people, have achieved many extraordinary things during our long, checkered, and storied history. None of them have really come easy, including the accomplishments that the Jewish people have been able to demonstrate over the last seven and eight decades, coming out of the shadows of the Holocaust and being able to really create a renaissance of Jewish life on so many levels, didn't come easy is illustrates this in stunning detail. And he talks about the nation that Esau founded, having quickly filled that part of the world with splendor, but very, very quickly fading away into irrelevance. And that really is the opposite of the bracha that we received. The bracha, the blessing that Yitzchak gave Yaakov, is a blessing that emphasizes toil and effort. An accomplishment, an achievement that comes through that toil and with those efforts. This is a subject for a different time, but the notion of using narcotics or substances to be happy is so alien to what Judaism considers to be a meaningful life. Happiness has to be earned, not smoked, sniffed, or eaten. Changing your state of mind is just an escape. It's an escape from reality. It's fraudulent. It's not what life's about. The eighth lesson, says the Mi'am Loas, is about the notion of in- inheritance, the hereditary nature of inheritance. Without going into the details, torah illustrates that there is a male dominated notion of inheritance and that's a subject for another day but he demonstrates from these verses how that's conveyed and he says during the time of the second temple it was the torah jews who faced off with the non-torah jews of the day known as Karaites or sadducees and ultimately it is through these verses that they were able to demonstrate the veracity of the Torah's true position the ninth novelty the ninth novelty he says is that Esau lives on Esau lives on he is merely migrated but in the end Esau mutates into something very different than the original Middle-Eastern Edomite nation. And it has everything to do with the future and the coming of Mashiach. And we'll come back to this ninth point. The tenth point, says the Ma'am Lois, is that some people make the mistake of thinking that the world God created must be left exactly as and that it's impossible to modify things. But that's actually not true. Now, it doesn't mean we're supposed to create illegitimate modifications, but technology is a good thing. And scientific breakthrough, as long as it doesn't violate Torah, and most of it doesn't, is actually positive. And he says the business that I discussed before, the breeding of the mules and the horses, or the donkeys and the horses to create the mule, is proof. That Hashem created everything in the beginning, but it doesn't mean that there cannot be changes effectuated after creation. Also a very nuanced subject for another day, but again, I'm sharing with you the Ma'am Lois' enumeration of novelty here, lifted from these 43 verses. The 11th, he says, this is quoting Nachman and Ramban, if a tzaddik said so, it'll be so. It'll be so because the tzaddik, Yitzchak, told Esav, al char you will live by your sword. That didn't take generations to be fulfilled. Esav lived by his sword. A small family of Esavites conquered a mighty nation of Seirites, establishing their homeland in Har Seir. It's important for us to know that the the bracha, the blessing of a tzaddik, was fulfilled in real time. The twelfth, very nuanced, is about the Jewish people having to respect the Asavite kinspeople of ours. Amalek is indeed the arch evil, and he's supposed to be destroyed. Amalek is not to be confused with the descendants of Asav. Mamloyes draws a sharp distinction between the legitimate descendants of Esau, those are from his wives, and Amalek, who comes from Timnah, a concubine of his son Eliphaz. So Eliphaz was sleeping with an illegitimate offspring, and through that illegitimate offspring, if I'm not making a mistake, oh, he fathered himself, so it's an extramarital, offspring, man living with his, I think, blood daughter, if I'm making no mistake, that produces the twisted, diabolical, evil Amalek and the Hamans that have followed from him. Imam Lois draws a sharp distinction between what he calls Zarah Amalek and Zara Asaf. And he says, Asaf's seed, we were told not to molest. On our way into the land, not even to lock horns with them, to avoid them altogether, and they had to be left in their place. A on the other hand, oh, that's a different story. And the only way we know that is from the construction of these 43 verses and the way we see Asaph's nation emerge and a Moloch seed being counted or set apart. So those are 12 important things we wouldn't know without these 43 verses, yet, as I mentioned in the outset, Ma'am Lois begins his entire tapestry of commentary by telling us that the secrets of the Torah are contained in these verses and we don't understand them. And it's all virtually a mystery, but the soul finds its thirst slaked from these very scriptural verses and we shouldn't miss a single nuance which doesn't mean that we shouldn't try and understand at least parts of it and that was a rather long segue into today's little portion today's little class which is going to focus specifically on one word one word One name. It happens to be right at the end of the Torah portion. From one name, we'll focus on two names. And the two-word Rashi. It's just a positive ID. Which on the surface, seems entirely strange. So, after hearing about the Chorites, or the sons of Seir, the Chorite, the original inhabitant of the land of Seir, who had occupied it before they were driven out by Esau. And after hearing about his family and the mules bred in the desert, after all the tribal chiefs of Chorites are enumerated, chief by chief in the land of Seir, we move on to the land of Edom or the kings of Edom. Now Yitzchak had blessed Yaakov and his descendants to be a master over your brothers meaning that Esau and his descendants were going to be subservient to Yaakov. The Torah describes how this blessing was in effect even when it appeared that Esau's descendants were an independent, self-governing nation, and that's because there were eight kings who reigned over Esau's descendants. However, this kingdom was never a true Edomite monarchy. The Edomites did not succeed in banding together under one of their own. Instead, they were forced to invite foreigners to serve as their kings, you know, like regents who reigned only in Edom, never expanded the country, and never ruled over Yaakov's descendants. And even this pseudo-kingdom only existed before there was a king who reigned over the descendants of Yaakov or Yisroel. And here the Torah prophetically alludes to the notion that Yaakov's children would indeed establish their own kingdom. And at that time, there would be no Edomite king to speak of. In fact, the first king of Bnei Yisrael was Shaul HaMelech. And Shaul, King Saul, conquered the pseudo-kingdom of Edom. And the Jewish people eventually appointed a governor to rule it on their behalf. And that's a vassalage that continued during the reign of eight consecutive Israelite kings, canceling any claim to the monarchy that the Edomites could make by virtue of having eight kings of their own. So even when the Edomites do win independence, and even when they do appoint kings, they're not really kings. That's basically, in a nutshell, what happens from verse 31 straight through to verse 40. That's the era of the kings. And we have all kinds of interesting detail of who these people were and what they did, including a king and his wife's name. And so rich was she that she considered gold to be practically worthless. All right. He even named his daughter as Mezav, Like, what is gold? Who needs gold? Now, in verse 40, which in the reading on Shabbat and Shul represents the moment of mafter, this is where the last, last three verses of Parshas Vayishlach, the Torah says, Ve'ela shmot alufei esav. Now we're not going to talk about kings, now we're going to talk about alufei, chiefs. So none of the aforementioned kings that go from verse 30 to 40 succeeded in establishing a real monarchy, if you will. Or royal bloodline. And after the last of them died, who was Hadar, you know, that's the guy who had a daughter who he called Who Needs Gold. After Hadar died, the Edomites abandoned their attempt to even try to organize themselves under a single centralized monarchy, and instead they separated into 11 different tribal groups. And these are the names of these tribal chiefs of Asaph who ruled over Asaph's descendants. This is from the time of King Shaul. Nearly four centuries after the Jewish people have left the land of Mitzrayim, they appoint a king whose name is Shaul, and King Saul, at this point, three and a half centuries, at this point eyes the country next door called Edom, which isn't really a country anymore, doesn't have a centralized monarch of any sort to speak of. We have, from here onward, families and regions, tribes. So we have a tribe which is known as Timnah. And there's a chief of the tribe. We have a tribe which is called Alva, and a chief of the tribe. And then we have a tribe called Yetate or Yaseis. They've got a chief too. Okay. Verse 41. We have a chief of the tribe, Aliv a chief, an aluf of Elah, and an aluf of the tribe, Pinon. I think we're at six now. Now we talk about Kanaz, Taman, and Mivzar. Each has got a chief. We're at nine, and then we hear of aluf magdil, that gives us ten, and aluf iram, the chief of iram. That's all. Eile Aluf edim, these are the tribal chiefs of Edom. Le <speaking> moshevotam, <in Hebrew> that is in the settlement the Eretz Achuzatam, in the land that they possessed. Who Esav? Avi Edom. That is, this is all of Esav, who is the progenitor of the Edomites. Is Israelites? They come from Israel, Yisrael, or Yaakov. There's Edomites, and they come from Esav, who is Edom. All right. No news here. (laughs) Nothing to write home about. Rashi doesn't really say very much. Rashi simply on verse 40, where we hear Shmot Rashi says, Nikru al Medino Tehem, La Tadar, as I told you, they're called by the names of their regions after Hadar dies. no more monarchy. the earlier ones who are mentioned, Shmot Toldotam. these are the names of these tribes that were born, or the genealogy. And this is openly, clearly spelled out in the book of Chronicles. It says, Hadar Hadar dies. Hadar is the last king in that state called Edom. And then there were chiefs in Edom. Maybe in the language of, uh, I don't know if you call it a modern language, but in the in in 19th or 20th century language of Arabic tribes living in that a sheikh. Sheikh this and sheikh that. Tribes, areas, regions, extended families, and a leader. Aluf Adem, Aluf Timah. Okay. So, I mean, Rashi's comment on verse 40 is meaningful. It's meaningful because it explains, it shows you, it demonstrates how after the era of Edomite kings comes to a close there is no state to speak of there are 13 disparate regions which to some degree manage to get along but they're really self-governed and independent of each other now we heard about there was an aluf timna and an aluf alva and an aluf Yaseis. what about that nothing alivama Ela, pinon these, these are not all new names. We've heard some of these names already. Kanaz, Taman, Mivzar, all right, names. We we started off by saying we don't really know what's going on here, and it's hard for us to appreciate these verses because our limited minds and our deficient understanding doesn't fully get the depth that's being played out here. You know, in the modern day and age, where people talk about Bible codes, you could understand that if you have a Bible code, There's a requirement to count every single letter, every space, in fact. And maybe in these very verses, some of the greatest secrets, some of the most amazing or compelling prophecies are spelled out. I don't know. Clearly, from a Kabbalistic level, every one of these names represents a different dimension and a different concept. Something very strange happens in the last verse of the Parsha. Very strange. Rashi decides to comment. Verse 43, Aluf Magdiel. Who's Magdiel? I don't know. Do you care who Magdiel is? Aluf Iram. Who's Iram? I don't know. He hasn't walked the face of the earth in like uh, 3,000 years. Rashi says, Magdiel? Who Romi? Magdiel is Rome. Magdiel is Rome. Who is Eram? I don't know. So I don't know who I have. Eleven tribes here, eleven chiefs. We know virtually nothing about them, and there is no requirement for Rashi to say anything. And yet, when it comes to Magdiel, suddenly Rashi says, one second, Magdiel is Rome. What forced Rashi to say that? Rome? The Italian boot? Remus and Romulus? being nursed by a wolf, setting up seven hills on the Tiber River. I mean, what does this have to do with Edom? Edom, we know where Edom is. Edom is in the southeastern region of Canaan. And we know that the Edomites expanded their area during the time of the Second Temple. The Edomites were very, very strong. At some point, once the story of Hanukkah was over and the Jewish people had established a real polity and a real self-determination, they forced many of the Edomites to leave. You can go to a place called Bet Guvrin in Israel and you can see places that they left. They simply filled with sand and left, so it's very easy to excavate those places. Some Edomites stayed. They were forcibly converted. but there were insincere conversions. Really bad idea. And their children were not really Jewish. One of the most famous descendants of those what the Romans called Idumia, which is just a Roman name for Edom. They didn't bother renaming Edom. They only had that special hatred reserved for Israel or Judea, renaming it Philistina. But Idumia was Edomia, Edom. It's an ancient land. So that area of Edomia, which yielded Edomites, many of whom lived in southern Israel, all the way up to Hebron. So one of the most famous Edomians, Edomites, is a man named Herod. Who's Herod? Come on, you know who Herod is. He's the guy who rebuilt the second base of English in the most amazing fashion. And the story is that there are two Maccabee descendants, names Jonathan Horkonus, or Yehudon Horkonus, and Aristobulus, two brothers, who are killing each other to try to control the little state of Judea. And the Romans get called in, and they're only too happy to get a finger in the door. Who did that? Not one of the Hasmonean kings, the weaker one. Jonathan Horkinus brought the Romans in who helped him defeat his brother and then defeated him allowed him to rule but really as a puppet in the end it is an Edomite named Antipatar and Antipatar ends up ruling instead of Jonathan Horkinus and his son is Hurdus Herod Herod the last great king of Judea, was not Jewish. The great builder was essentially a great friend of Rome. He demoted Jerusalem and tried to build a different national center. He shifted the world's attention to a Roman port city called Caesarea, Caesarea. was probably once like Tel Aviv is today, regarded by many in the world as the real capital. Do you know what is left of Caesarea? Almost nothing. Incredible ports built by a remarkable builder. Everything collapsed. It was only for an Israeli aviator flying over the area who noticed I think it's called a Hi- Hippod- Hippodotamus or something, which is like a, the outline of what must have been an amphitheater. And he discovered the forgotten city of Caesarea. So it is Herod who makes Judea into a full Roman vassal state. But what does that have to do with Magdeo? And what does it have to do with I mean. Why does Rashi even share these words? Let's take a look at the Medrash. The Medrash Rabbah actually has quite a bit to say on these verses. And on this final verse, 43rd verse, the Medrash Rabbah speaks about many of the names that are mentioned. The Medrash Rabbah goes on to talk about the daughter of Matred, who built Turiot, Vodot Kachovem, towers in honor of the idols. Rabbi Simon says, They ran a beauty, or they were ethnicists. They would make women beautiful for the husbands, and then go seduce the woman. And then we hear about Mezahav and all this medrash about the kings, and then the Medrash turns its attention to the chieftains. The Medrash does not talk about verse 40, 41 or 42. The Medrash only talks about verse 43. And the Medrash says, and I quote, Aluf Magdiel, Aluf Irom. Yom shamolach. <laughs> lotionus on the day that lotionus took the throne or became Caesar in Rome, Nira Rabbi Ami Rabbi Ami, one of the great sages of the Talmud, has a dream, and in the dream, the following message is delivered: Hayom molach Magdil. Today, Magdil. Has risen to the throne. Now who is Lotionus? There is no Roman king named Lotionus but we presume him to be Diocletian or Diocletian. Or Diocletian. Now this man Diocletian who rules at the end of the third century into the very beginning of the fourth century when he ascends the throne. Bebiyami has this dream. Now, Diocletian was a very interesting Caesar who ends up dividing the country into quads, quadrants, and creating kind of uh, complementary empires within the empire so that it's better run. And he has many innovations, and he does a lot of very powerful things. And many, at least many historians and scholars, believe that Diocletian was successful in stemming the fall of Rome for probably 15 decades. It is through Diocletian and the methodologies he sets in place that eventually the Roman pantheism comes to an end and Constantine, who I believe is a generation or two after Diocletian, establishes Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire. And they've never left Rome since. Okay, so the Medr says, Hayom Malach Diocletian ascends the throne, if that's who he is. Hayom Malach Magdil. So the Atyyeis says, well, what, what does that mean? Magdiel is living in the time of Shaul HaMelech. He's living in the beginning of the Hebrew Commonwealth. So Aetyasef says, Kalaimar Shuhumizera Magdil." He's from the seed, the progeny of Magdil. alufa asiri, the 10th tribe, the 10th chieftain. And he says, one second, from then in history to the time of Rabbi Ami? Even though there were many other kings, it seems maybe that the name of this tribe was Magdil, or maybe the chieftain himself's name is Magdil, but there were many kings after. That's... One way of reading the Etzio Joseph, or maybe the Etzio Joseph means that Diocletian was not the last king of Rome. There were many kings after him. There were. He says maybe they were all from Magdil's progeny. When the scepter, what tribe of royalty, will depart from the seat of Magdil, then... Yitzmach Achraf Keren Malchus Ben Irom. Then Irom will step in. He is the last, the 12th, the eleventh of the chieftains. He will make a mound of treasures and bring that to Mashiach. And for this, we go back into the Medrash. Oid Omar. Furthermore, he said, "This is all." I think Rabbi Simon speaking. He says Melchagedd Nisbakish le Edom Aluf Irum Another yet another king is going to be called forth for Edom and he is from the chieftains of of Irum Amileb Khanina Zipora and of Zipori related Lamma nikra shma Irum what's the name Irum about Shu asad la Irum tis Tisvarius are treasures Mounds of treasures, la an is a is a mound, a pile, as the pirish marzu says. Rabbi Levi finishes off this medrash by saying, there was a ruler in Rome, shayim evazveis Tisvarius shalaviv, who was squandering the treasures amassed by his father. Niderle Elio, Elijah the prophet, appears to him, Mitzamsin, Your, your, he upbraided him. He said, Your ancestors amassed, and you are now squandering? this emperor continued to collect the gold, and didn't budge, until he had replenished it. That's what the Medrash says. Medrash is Medrash. Does it mean there's an actual treasure somewhere? Is this the treasure storehouses of the Vatican? I have no idea. I don't know. Who, who, where is Rome today? Who is Rome? Is Rome not the Western civilization? Did Rome not become the, quote, Holy Roman Empire or Europa? Is Europe not from whence the United States and Canada, and for that matter, Mexico and all the South American countries come? Here in Canada, we speak French and English. That's pretty European. In the United States, they speak English. In Mexico, they're speaking Spanish. England, Spain. In Argentina, they're speaking Castigliano, from a portion of Spain, Castilla. In Brazil, they're speaking Portuguese. None of these countries really speak their indigenous people's languages. In Canada, we've now just started to recognize all the indigenous peoples who were dispossessed and displaced, but we're not changing the language. The etiquette that governs this country essentially is English. So really North and South America have become an extension of Europe and Europe was all under the dominion or influence of Rome or the Vatican. So you see Rome still lives or Rome's spirit lives on. And through Rome, Esau lives today. Say you accept that. Perhaps. So what? Why does the Parsha end with that? Of what relevance is this? That's a good question. And just because it's a Midrash, why did Rashi have to quote it? After all, there are many, many Midrashim that say a lot of very interesting things that rashi chooses not to quote let me share with you the words of nachmanides ramban he quotes rashi and then he comments and in case you're the only one you think you're the only one who's not understanding why rashi had to say this ramban says count me in i didn't really understand this ramban says here he quotes, that's a paraphrasing of Ezekiel 12. But Nachman always does that. If you're talking about some kind of distant prophecy, there's so many Caesars who ruled in Rome. Ain't Romy aluf, They're not one of the chiefs or tribes of asaph Avlo Malchus gedela. Romans are a really powerful empire. Takifa Yaseira exceptionally mighty as is alluded to in the book of Daniel. Daniel even says there was simply nothing quite like the Roman Empire ever. Nachmanides directs us to take a look in Pirke De Rebbe Elezer, the Midrashic teachings Of the Rebbe and peer of Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Eliezer, who said that when Esau packed his bags and left the land of Israel behind for Yaakov, Hashem promised to give him a hundred provinces in return. That was a big deal. The truth is that Esau left out of guilt and shame. He knew that he was not going to be the one inheriting this land of Abraham and Isaac, so why pay the price and go into Galut and exile? He knew that he had sold his birthright. He knew he didn't get the blessings. He knew he wasn't going to father the nation that would become the light onto the other nations. But the fact is, he could have remained and he could have given Yaakov a really hard time, but he didn't. And because he didn't, that's why he deserved greatness. The Pirkei of says he was given a hundred provinces from Seir, Seir which is southeast of modern-day Israel, to Italy, to Rome. The entire basin, Mediterranean basin, was all once the Roman Empire, comprised of a hundred countries. Britain was once Roman. So he says, that maybe Ramban says what you could be saying over here is, the Torah wants you to know that this is an illusion, a hint. You should know that Hashem repays everyone and everything, and in the end, they gets repaid. And that's why the tenth tribe or chief is called Magdiel. And that's to tell you that there will be Roman kings who will rule in what is called in Torah, in the view, Torah literature, or in the view, the global view of Torah, the fourth kingdom to dominate Israel, which is still the kingdom today, i.e. Western civilization, that they would rule over Rome. In other words, the tenth of them would someday rule Rome. And from there, his rule would spread to the whole world. Nachmanides writes this before the Americas were discovered. He said, from Rome, from Rome, or from Europe, the rule would spread to the whole world. And the most common language in the world today, and the most common civilization in the world today, is that which is spawned by the Roman Empire, the Romance languages, and the customs and conventions of what we call the Western world. Now, Nachmanides tells us this is the allusion to the name Magdiel, that as is mentioned in the book of Daniel, Daniel speaking about the evil rose raised himself higher than all other gods. Like says about speaking over there, Daniel is speaking over there. If my memory doesn't fail me, the <laughs> Netzar. And this is what the whole business of these ten kings are about, that the last of them becomes so great and mighty as it says in the B'Rishish Rabbah. And then the Ramban finishes off by saying, Aluf Iram is the one who will bring the mound of treasures to Mashiach Meheri Gola may be speedily redeemed. In other words, from Western civilization, we will enter into the coming of Mashiach. And the treasures and the wealth that's been amassed by Western cultures and civilizations and countries will eventually all be funneled to Mashiach who will use it to make the world the perfect place it was always destined to be. Very interesting. So now we have a Medrash and a Ramban who are telling us that Magdil eventually is the one who receives the reward for Esau's vacating the land of Israel, a Magdil Israimi, and that's the meaning of the Medrash. But my friends, I'm asking a simple question. Why didn't Rashi have to mention this? Of what value is it? How does it add in what we call Pshutosh Homikra, Rashi's self-imposed mandate of explaining the literal meaning of the scripture? Lucky for us, the Rebbe spoke about this question. The years 1965 or very late 64 and the Rebbe who recently lost his mother has devoted himself now to pioneering a new approach in the study of Rashi to honor his mother's memory. And every Shabbat he honors his mother by teaching Rashi, speaking sometimes about two words in Rashi for two hours, Shabbat Parshas Vayishlach, it's an edited talk printed in the appendix, the, add on, the appendage of the fifth volume of Lekut HaSichas, towards the end of that fabrengen, the Rebbe says at the end of the Torah portion, Rashi comments and says Magdil is Rome. And the Rebbe says, Shal Mikra, Literal meaning? What has Rashi added? Of what relevance is it to the appreciation or understanding of the Scripture if Magdil is Rome or Phoenicia? Leba says that Rashi is actually answering an open question. He's tying up an issue that really hasn't been resolved. Earlier in the Parsha, now we're going back to Genesis thirty three fourteen, 14, where Esau says, I'll travel with you. And Yaakov says, nah, don't bother. You have a fit group of athletic men. I have children, babies. I've got sheep, ewes, goats. If I push them too hard, they'll just collapse. They might even die. You go at your pace. I'll get there eventually. And he said, and this is a quote, Ad asher ovey al se'ira. Until I come, until I come, to my master at Seir. So Rashi says, did Yaakov intend to go to Seir? Because he never went. So Rashi says, Yaakov here is speaking with a very, very futuristic vision. In the end of days, which is just about now, when the coming of Mashiach arrives, that's when Yaakov goes there. That's the meaning of that famous verse that comes from the prophecies of Obadiah. this weeks of Torah, a direct descendant of Esau in Edomite, and this Edomite descendant who becomes a righteous convert and one of the most righteous Jewish people ever to have lived, the prophet Obadiah, The prophet Obadiah says, the Elohim and the saviors will mount, rise on Mount Zion, to judge the mountain of Asov. So comes the question. It's called in the prophecies of Daniel, the fourth Galut. The fourth iteration of Galut, which is also known as the final iteration of exilic dispersion, suffering and persecution for the Jewish people, Golos HaAchrein. And that's identified by the Gemara that deals with this in detail, in great detail. It's a Gemara which talks about all those prophecies of what exactly was being visualized, what was being seen. It's a Gemara Mosechus Megillah that talks about the idea of Nebuchadnezzar and then the future prophecies of Daniel. And the Gemara Migilla Megillah says clearly that that final Golos is Golos roimi. What does that have to do with Esau? Esau, Esau is an Edomite. He lives in the Middle East. He's living in what's called today Jordan. What does that have to do with Rome from Italy? That's an obvious question. If Rashi hadn't mentioned it earlier, he didn't mention it. But Rashi himself says that Esav is Edom, and that this has to do with the coming of Mashiach, and it has to do with the coming of Mashiach, Lishprit is Har but the coming of Mashiach is overpowering the Galut that right now shackles us, the Galut-Rvi, which is called Galus Roimi, the Roman Western civilization. What does that have to do? What does that have to do with Esav? Seems like nothing. Rashi says, tying up the loose ends from three chapters ago, chapter 33, verse 14. The, the Rashi says, Makdiel, that is Esau, which is not Rashi's innovation, it's a Gemara. But Rashi's forced to say it because otherwise the child says, This ain't making sense. You told me a story about Yaakov going to Haresov when Mashiach comes, but Mashiach's coming is vanquishing Romi. Not Esau. Therefore, Rashi draws on this message that Magdiel is the progenitor of Diocletian or whoever else served as a Caesar who came from that seed. Diocletian, by the way, was not from Roman nobility. He was born to a family of commoners who very easily could have emigrated from Idumia or Edom. Now here, the Rebbe goes on to suggest something absolutely fascinating. Rome is called Magdiel because, one, Magdiel comes from the terminology of Gdula, Romimut. Romi is Miromeim. Romi, Rome rises high, heaves itself above. Magdil. it rises itself very powerful before the coming of Mashiach, and that's why it's called Magdiel magnifies itself. Magdiel is also an allusion to the notion Higdal al El rises himself over all other gods, declaring himself to be divine and supreme. And ultimately, that its dominion or influence will spread over the entirety of Hashem's world. Like we learned before in the Ramban. So the Rebbe says the notion that Magdil is Romi is also the reason that Rashi has to say, and these are the Alufe esav, that Nikru al Shem Medinoteim, Rashi said. We just read that Rashi before, they're called by virtue of their regions. Because since Magdil is Romi, and that comes from the term Rome as a region, from this we can understand that the other chieftains are also named after their regions. There is one little problem still left. Magdiel is Rome, and Rome or Roimi is being identified as the final Galut. Then why is it that we read in the pusuk that after Aluf Magdiel, we have Aluf Iram? There's nothing after Rome. Rome is the last Galus. Who is Iram? Ah. The Rebbe yes. says there are Mepharshim who seem to believe that Magdiel and Iram are really one. And they just have two different names for Rome. But in the mystical dimensions of Torah and all writings of Kabbalah, and this is elaborated on greatly in the literature of Chasidus, we have this notion that Kedusha, is always the perfect symmetry using the number 10, I think the abacus, and Klippa, the extraneous energy, always uses the number 11. And when we use 11, it's to uplift, to transform otherwise something which is in Klippa. The only thing in Kedusha that has the number 11 is Ketoret. There are 11 different ingredients, and the 11th ingredient is a non Kosher item, the bird of a, an exotic animal from the Far East. And that represents only Ketoret can actually turn Klipa the ultimate husk and unholy, into something meaningful and holy. So it's still got to have 11. It's clear that the chieftains of of represent Klipa and there's got to be 11. So if Aluf Magdiel is number 10, Aluf Iram has to be number 11. So the Rebbe says that as we kind of saw in the Medrash, Medrash basically says that, that Magdil is Rome and Irom is Rome. Both are Rome. You could suggest that different Caesars came from the seed of Esau, either through Magdil or through Irom. The Rebbe says that this represents two different levels within Galut Romi. He says there's this notion of Magdil that comes from the terminology Higdiel Alkol El. And that's the notion that Rome rises himself above God as Ramban elaborates quoting the Gemara Mesech at Megillah and the prophecies of Daniel. However, the Medrash talked about this element of gathering mounds of treasures and funneling those treasures to Mashiach. And the Rebbe says that this is because there are actually two iterations within the Galut of Rome. The first Galut of Rome, the brutal, violent, and terrible persecution. Millions of Jews massacred, ripped to pieces from the pits of the gladiators to the amount, the extraordinary amount of murder and mayhem that went on in the land of Israel during the destruction of the Second Base of English and the persecution that ensued for decades after. And Rome continued that. And ultimately, it was that persecution, it was that same hatred it was that same Roman ace of I evil that fueled the Inquisition, countless pogroms, the Crusades, and sadly the Holocaust. That's my deal. However, there's another element in Romy. And it's the notion that Romi comes from the term Romemut, glory, or grandeur, in a holy and in a good way. Before, you didn't see it. You saw Magdiel rising himself, raising himself over God as it, as it is. But then the word Iram, which is actually very close to Romi, Iram is when Rome is cleansed and perfected. It's when Rome is fixed. Magdiel, who Romi, helps us appreciate how... Rashi's choosing to comment here also answers another question. We're supposed to climax with something good. We're supposed to end on a good note. And the good note here is that Romi Magdiel will lead to Iron. And those are the treasures that will actually fuel the messianic transformation of the world as we know it. Even the notion of Magdil, in a deeper way represents this concept that deep, deep under the surface of rising against God will come a nation that will help to raise God and godliness and God-consciousness. Magdil will give way to Iram. And as the Medr says, Nikra Iram He's called Iram because he will amass mounds of treasure that will be funneled to fix the world forever. And that, my dear friends, is something incredible that we can learn from this last Rashi, final comment on Parshas Vayishlach. Despite the fact that there has been a long and very bloody and painful history that the Jewish people have had to endure from the extension of the progeneration of Esau, Esau in the end is going to be helping us. And I'd like to believe that the events of the last couple of years are indicative of this. The United States, that is the superpower, if you will, or face of the Western world, has helped Israel greatly, up to the move of the embassy, which is still an incomplete an imperfect situation, but a situation in which we see the very forces that once persecuted us are the very forces that are helping Israel to be able to re-establish itself in the place that Am Yisrael has always belonged. And we hope and we pray that in Mir Hashem, we together will merit to see the fulfillment of Magdiel's full evolution into Iram, bring home the treasures and to assist us in raising the world to its perfection to become the beautiful godly garden it was always intended to be with the coming of Mashiach the will be Amen If you're still watching, thank you so much I really appreciate your attention I hope you enjoyed studying these verses of Torah together with me and if you're not yet subscribed please do so. When you subscribe, don't forget to enable notifications. And that way, you can always be notified when we're about to start to study Hashem's Torah again. And as we study Torah, we are elevated, we're empowered to elevate our environment, and we come one step closer to the dissemination of godly knowledge throughout the whole world which accelerates the coming of Mashiach. Vemheira ubi amenu, Amen.